Now, in preparing for today's interview, I found this little item online. Global population hits 8 billion and we need to keep growing. Here's why. Well, if a little bit of something is good, then surely a lot of it must be really good, right? Well, I think my guest today will have something to say about that. Uh, Ian Lowe is Emeritus Professor at, of Science at Griffith University and author of several books on population and the environment, including Bigger or Better, Australia's Population Debate. And uh, Ian is a patron of Sustainable Population Australia, where I am a member. And Ian is also a contributing author to the book of which I am co-editor, Sustainability and the New Economics, published by Springer in 2022. Hello, Ian, and great to be talking to you today. It's a pleasure, Ron. All right. Now, what's your reaction to uh, that quote I gave you at the top of the interview? Uh, I'll reread it. A global population hits 8 billion and we need to keep growing. I don't know if the person who said that is seriously suggesting that we are suffering because of a shortage of people and that uh, all our problems could be solved if only there were more of us. Uh, we've known since the publication of the first report of the Club of Rome, The Limits to Growth, 50 years ago, that if human population continued to grow and our demands for resources and our consequent production of industrial objects and uh, food were to continue expanding, we would reach limits within 100 years and that the most likely outcome would be a sudden and irreversible decline in social, economic and environmental well-being starting somewhere around 2030. And uh, Dr. Graham Turner of CSIRO has compared that standard world model of the limits to growth with uh, 50 years of data and uh, showed that we are right on track uh, for that dismal future in which world population peaks sometime in the next decade or so and then declines uh, catastrophically. And in that standard world model, the human population at the end of this century is about half what it is today. Now, that's human misery on a quite inconceivable scale, but um, it's the inevitable consequence of not recognising that there are limits to growth and behaving as if we can defy the iron law of ecology, which is that no species can increase without limit in a closed ecological system. Yes, uh, 2030 is uh, rapidly approaching. Here we are in the late 2022. Uh, is there enough time to turn it around, do you think? Well, uh, the limits to growth said that uh, none of those trends are inevitable. And it's entirely possible to redirect the trajectory of human development onto a path that would be sustainable in the distant future and which would allow every human on Earth, however carelessly they chose their parents, to develop their full potential. Uh, but they went on to say that uh, that alternative future would require conscious political decisions rather than a naive trust that the magic of the market would deliver us the sort of future we want. And I have to say that uh, the prospect of a sustainable future, of a continuation of what we regard as civilised futures, uh, depends critically on decisions being made and the 
approach of masterly inaction, as Sir Humphrey Appleby put it, which has been the way uh, governments all around the world have treated those warnings for 50 years, uh, will ensure that uh, civilization declines, even if it doesn't collapse. Uh, so we urgently need decision makers to recognize that there are limits and to be prepared to live within them. One of the depressing observations I made recently is that uh, almost every government in the world, whether a government of a desperately poor country or a government of a very affluent country, uh, aspires to grow further. And um, the report of the World Commission on Environment and Development, the so-called Brundtland Report, which was published in 1987, said that the two serious threats to our natural systems are desperate poverty in the poorest parts of the world. Because if you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, you're not worried about the long-term consequences of your decision. You'll do whatever you have to do to put food on the table. Uh, but the other uh, trend, the other driving factor of unsustainable futures, they said, was unsustainable levels of consumption in the affluent parts of the world. And those unsustainable levels of consumption have continued to increase in the last 35 years. Um, both our numbers keep increasing, but equally worrying, our per capita consumption increases as well. In the first national report on the state of the environment, we pointed out that if you compare Sydney in 1990 with Sydney in 1970, uh, in that period, the population of Sydney had increased by 30%, but the per capita consumption had also increased by 30%, so that the resource demands of Sydney had increased by 1.3 times 1.3, which is about 1.7. There had been about a 70% increase in the demand that Sydney made on the natural systems of this planet just in a 20-year period because both the numbers were growing and per capita consumption was growing. And we are still in that situation that um, uh, the summit that the newly elected uh, Albanese government convened um, had a variety of views on a lot of subjects, but the one issue on which there was consensus is that we should go back to pre-COVID levels of immigration. In other words, the consensus was that the so-called natural increase of births minus deaths in Australia of about 150,000 a year was not sufficient to provide the sort of economic growth that the decision makers wanted. And that could only be achieved if we supplemented that by going back to pre-pandemic levels of inward migration so that the Australian population grows by about a million every two and a half years instead of a million every seven years. And in the short term, that provide to a larger economy, more people means there's more demand for food and clothing and housing and transport and uh, recreational facilities. Um, but in the long term, we are eroding our natural resources. And um, in the long term, we will all suffer from the fact that we are running down the capacity of natural systems to provide the essentials of a civilized life. Well, when we hear demographers talking about world population, it, the growth, the rate of growth has been declining since around 1960. And uh, they pin their hopes on that, assuming they think that there are limits to growth. 
uh, is that enough or as you've just been saying population or consumption has actually been increasing per capita during that period? Yes, well, the, the rate of growth in percentage terms has been declining, but the absolute growth remains about 80 million extra people a year. And um, the world scientists' second warning to humanity identified the continuing growth in our population and the continuing increase in per capita consumption as the two driving forces of futures that appear unsustainable. And all the environmental trends are negative. Uh, we're mostly now familiar with the fact that climate change is accelerating and we're all paying the price in terms of extreme events. But th that report also identified other, even more worrying trends. Freshwater per capita is down by 25% in the last 25 years. The world fish catch is down by 20%. The number of ocean dead zones has almost doubled. We've lost about 100 million hectares of forest. Perhaps most worryingly, species abundance in 1992 was down to 60% of the 1970 level. It's now down to 40% of the 1970 level. And today, something like 96% of the mass of mammals on this planet is humans and our domesticated livestock. Only 4% of the mass of mammals is other animals that uh, aren't part of the, the human system. And that's clearly not sustainable. I think while climate change is the most serious problem in the short term, the loss of our biodiversity is clearly the most serious problem in the long term because climate change is potentially reversible. With purposive action, you could restore a pre-industrial climate in one or 200 years. But there is no way of bringing, we have never successfully brought back one extinct species. And we're now losing species at a rate comparable with the five previous great extinction events in the history of the planet. And on current trends, we look like losing somewhere between a quarter and a half of all known species this century. Now, we're pulling random bricks out of the wall of life, and sooner or later, whole sections are going to collapse. So basically, if we expect to have a civilised future, we need to recognise that there are limits. We need to have policies both to stabilise our numbers and, equally importantly, to significantly reduce our per capita consumption. And I think it's quite credible that we could have a civilised life consuming between a quarter and a half the resources we now do. Um, in fact, the 1960s, uh, I was alive and uh, we weren't um, shivering in the dark with dirt floors. Australia was quite a civilised country in the 1960s and our resource consumption was less than half per capita what it is today. Uh, the critical need is to recognise that there are limits and set out policies that significantly reduce our resource demand so that we live within those limits. Well, um, comprehending the sort of population numbers that we're talking about is quite hard because once you get over a million, it's, it's a sort of an abstract concept. But uh, I did a little calculation, which is that in the roughly half hour that we will do this interview, the global population will net increase by 3,700. And so that brings us down to a human scale. Now, uh, the quote that I gave you at the top of the interview that uh, uh, why we need to keep growing was from uh, Fox News. I don't think that will surprise you. 
But I, I, I mention that because is that an example of where uh, neoliberalist thinking and even the uh, uh, corporates, uh, companies have captured state and not just the state mechanisms, but uh, the thinking of, of economists? Yes, and that's why we urgently need, as uh, the Springer book called it, a new economics. Um, Herman Daly was talking about the need for a steady state economy 50 years ago. And uh, somebody, I think it was Kenneth Balding, observed that the only two people who believe, the only two groups of people who believe you can have unlimited growth, that growth can go on forever, are the clinically insane and economists. Uh, and he suggested that uh, those weren't necessarily discrete sets uh, in the sense that most economists he knew uh, still believe that you could grow without limit in a closed system. And um, we urgently need new thinking about economics uh, rather than assuming that growth will solve the problems that have been caused by growth. And um, recent studies of more intelligent indicators like the genuine progress indicator or well-being indicators suggest that the growth of the last 40 years in countries like Australia, North America, Western Europe, hasn't produced any improvement in well-being, any improvement in happiness. Um, I think the reason that uh, surveys suggest that in Australia there's significant opposition to ramping up levels of migration is that the Australians living in urban areas accurately perceive that their quality of life has gone backwards in the last 40 years because infrastructure hasn't kept pace with the growth in population. And uh, so their quality of life has declined and there hasn't been any significant economic improvement to compensate them for their declining quality of life. So while economists and decision makers in Canberra assure them that they are better off because of the increasing population, uh, from the point of view of the ordinary person in the street, uh, that improvement has not occurred. You used the term just now, uh, more intelligent indicators, and I presume you're referring to the way the GDP is, has an, uh, almost a wholly um, following that it's that it's has a magical status in economic and political thinking. Now, if we're going to get to a steady state and we're already exceeding the planetary boundaries, does that mean we need degrowth, or how do we get to that point? Well, I think the only futures that are even in principle sustainable are ones in which we stabilise the human population and then significantly reduce our material consumption. Um, a UN report which I reviewed uh, said that if the legitimate material expectations of the population of the Indo-Pacific area and Southeast Asia are to be met within the limits of natural systems, we need a new industrial revolution in which we meet our material needs using perhaps a quarter of the resources per capita that we now do. That's the only sort of future that is potentially sustainable. When you can't have uh, a steady state in which you freeze in the current level of inequality, where um, we do property deals on our mobile phones as we drive around in a world in which the majority of the human population have never made a phone call, never owned property, never ridden in a car. Um, there are still people in the world living uh, 
uh, at a standard that has not improved significantly since the 13th century. And I remember the Argentinian economist, Gilberto Gallopin, making the point that when he grew up in Argentina, he said we were dirt poor, but we didn't know anything else. But he said today's communication technology means the people in the poorest parts of the world know what they're missing out on. And so that level of inequality is politically and socially unsustainable. So uh, our urgent task is to meet the minimum living standards of people in the poorest parts of the world, and that's what the Sustainable Development Goals are about. And if those increases in material consumption in the poorest parts of the world are to be met within a system where we're now using about one and a half times the sustainable uh, capacity of natural systems, there has to be a dramatic reduction in the material demands in the more affluent parts of the world, such as Australia, North America, and Western Europe. And those trends are already in place. Uh, there's been significant improvements in resource use in Western Europe, but there's little sign in North America or in Australia of uh, any commitment at all to improving uh, the efficiency of using resources. As a concrete example of that, nearly 20 years ago, the National Framework for Energy Efficiency was a report presented to the Howard government in 2003. And it concluded that we could reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by about a third using cost-effective existing technology that pays for itself in less than four years. And 20 years later, we have implemented absolutely none of the recommendations of that report. We have not improved our resource efficiency at all. We still don't have any vehicle efficiency standards. Um, the Minimum standards for our appliances are appalling. Many of the refrigerators and other appliances on sale in Australia could not legally be sold in Western Europe. Some of them could not even be sold in the more progressive states of the USA, which is hardly a paragon of energy efficiency. So we need to recognise the, the limits of consumption and we need to be prepared to use resources more efficiently. Uh, as somebody put it, we need to live more simply so that people in the poorest parts of the world can simply live. Yes, well, if the, the government has had a very poor record in Australia of implementing the recommendations of that report, then it suggests that the idea of moving to degrowth or a steady state economies is going to be really difficult sell. How do we convince uh, the general population, uh, government and business, that uh, it's something that we need to do. Well, uh, I, I agree with the uh, comment by Lester Thorough, who said uh, it's difficult to persuade people that the party should end if they haven't got to the bar yet. Um, if we're going to persuade people to accept a degrowth agenda, um, we shouldn't be telling them the bar is closing. We should be telling them about a better party that's starting up, one that uh, won't run out of food and drink, one that won't lead them with a nasty hangover of degraded landscapes or radioactive waste, uh, one that won't have the neighbours enviously peering through the window or throwing rocks on the roof because they'll be invited in, and one that they won't have to explain guiltily to their grandchildren because 
it will have taken into account their needs. So I think the urgent task is to develop a vision of a better future uh, and recruit support for that. Uh, I think that's a more likely way to achieve the sort of change that we need uh, than simply shouting at people that they're being irresponsible and uh, you know, telling them to behave better. Uh, or expecting decision makers who are under huge pressure from vested interests who benefit in the short term from business as usual, uh, expecting decision makers. Um, there was uh, a book written uh, more than 20 years ago that said that politicians will always be reluctant to take difficult decisions in the interests of future generations as long as they can argue that the experts are divided and more research is needed. And in these complex issues, you will always be able to find an expert who says there's nothing to worry about. You will always find researchers who say that we need more research before we can reach a conclusion. And so there is always a, a get out of jail free card for politicians um, who don't want to do anything. And in my experience, even those intelligent politicians who recognize that there are limits and recognize that growth can't go on forever, uh, don't want it to stop in their term of office. They want it to be somebody else who carries the can. Um, and uh, that that is the fundamental problem, I think, that um, in the short term, a whole lot of commercial interests benefit from the continuation of present trends. Um, in the long term, uh, even if those trends are disastrous, um, they want to be uh, making some profit. I think it was Richard Dennis said that uh, the fossil fuel industries are like uh, an ice cream cart whose freezer has packed up. And uh, knowing that uh, what is at the moment a saleable resource will be unsaleable slush in a couple of hours, um, the ice cream vendor would be desperately reducing prices and uh, trying to sell some of the product uh, while it was still marketable. And he argues that the, the intelligent people in the coal industry, in the gas industry, in the oil industry, realize that what is now a marketable product will be unsaleable in 10 or 20 years' time. And so they're desperately trying to get some return for their shareholders while they can. Um, that's almost criminally irresponsible behavior but it's arguably the fiduciary duty of uh, directors of a publicly listed company um, to do what they can to maximize shareholder value. And if we want them to behave in a different way, then we need a different legal framework in which uh, directors of companies have a long-term responsibility to the community and to the planet, as well as just a short-term responsibility to the shareholders. Yes, re rethinking in the corporation is one thing. If you've seen the documentary called The Corporation, uh, they tick off all the attributes of psychopathy. And a, a corporation uh, in the most in the forms that we most commonly see it, uh, races psychopath. And uh, with regard to uh, the, your, the metaphor you gave of the ice cream vendor, uh, another way I think of it is that when you go to the doctor or your health professional, uh, nobody wants to hear the words, you're going to have to cut back. It's un unpalatable news. So uh, you also mentioned efficiency 
and uh, the better use of resources. Is renewable energy uh, enough? And where does the circular economy lead us? Well, uh, obviously, renewable energy is better than non-renewable energy because it's not reducing the resources and it's doing less damage to the natural systems of the planet. Uh, but uh, there is no uh, energy-producing technology which is environmentally benign. I mean, it takes resources to produce wind turbine blades or solar panels, and we have to deal with the waste problem at the end of their life. So whatever technology we use to produce energy, uh, it should be the highest priority to use it more efficiently, to use it less wastefully. Uh, in our housing standards are appalling in Australia, uh, that um, we don't uh, insulate our buildings properly. Uh, we don't... Um, uh, and the failure to insulate properly means people are less comfortable as well as spending more money sort of fighting the, the natural climate. A circular economy makes much more sense than an economy in which resources make a very short one-way trip from the mine to the product to the rubbish tip. And if we want to move towards a circular economy, we need to change the economic signals, firstly, so that there is a real price charged for obtaining resources, rather than assuming that they're a gift of nature that uh, people should be free to exploit. And there should be a realistic charge in managing waste. Uh, now, at the moment, we basically gift our resources to mining companies. Um, I think an American economist said the Gabon was, uh, the Gambia, sorry, in Africa was the only country she knew that got a worse deal from resource companies than Australia. We've almost uh, behaved as if um, they were doing us a favour by taking our resources and selling them to the highest bidder. And uh, we don't realistically charge for the burden that waste puts on the community. The UN 2015 Survey of Progress Towards Sustainability found Australia was uh, either the worst or among the worst in the world for the uh, criterion of solid waste produced per capita. Uh, and that's a cost to the community. Our local authorities, our state governments have to manage that waste. And um, I've been very concerned in the particular case of radioactive waste. Successive governments have spent huge amounts of resources and huge amounts of policy time trying to find a way to manage the radioactive waste, which is a legacy of past decisions um, to have research reactors to... Uh, use radioactive isotopes and so on. So um, the circular economy, I think, is a critical step forward, uh, seeing the waste of one activity as the resources for another. And uh, that recognises both that resources are limited and our capacity to manage wastes are limited. Uh, yes, we should move towards renewable energy, but energy is only about a, a quarter of our a contribution to climate change. So even totally cleaning up the electricity system wouldn't solve the problem of accelerating climate change if we didn't do something about transport, about manufacturing, about industrial process heating and so on, the other contributors to, to climate change. And the renewable technologies do use finite resources, do use non-renewable resources. So while they're better than burning coal or burning gas, uh, they're not by themselves a magic bullet that uh, moves us towards a sustainable future. 
Yes, I've been reading about lithium mining in the Atacama Desert, one of the driest places on the planet, and yet they need huge quantities of water to extract the lithium. And uh, here's a little item I found today uh, about the circular economy, right? So aluminium is one of the best case scenarios for re recycling because it's a fairly homogeneous material. But in the US, I think it's better in Australia, the recycling rate is 49%. Not well known is the fact that uh, even with recycled material, well, aluminium, you need 30% virgin material because it, I'm not sure the technical reason, but it degrades on its way through. So in the, in the book that Mark Diesendorf and I have just written, uh, we call it the leaky circular economy. And at every step of the cycle, it leaks from at the consumer during production, during distribution, and even just collecting the resources stuff is lost. And I don't know what's the best we can do with a, a circular economy, but it's a long, long way off 100%. That's right. And there is resistance to moves in that direction. And South Australia introduced a modest, modest beverage container uh, deposit levy 30 years ago, and the packaging industry has fought tooth and nail to prevent that modest proposal migrating to other states because it measurably improves the percentage of beverage containers that are recycled. And that means that in the short term, the industry sells less of its product. I mean, aluminium is a classic example of a product that should be recycled. Uh, when I was in the energy research group at the UK Open University, we did a study and I think we found it takes something like 4% of the energy to, re to produce aluminium from scrap aluminium as to produce it from bauxite. Um, so there is a huge energy advantage in taking uh, using the aluminium and reusing it rather than replacing it uh, with virgin material. Uh, but... Um, in the short term, uh, the industry opposes measures like that uh, that would reduce wasteful sales. And the industry is quite happy to see half of the beer cans go to landfill uh, because it means in the short term they sell more beer cans. What you've said just now suggests that uh, the problem is capitalism itself, as we know. Do you want to drill into that a bit further? Well, a fundamental problem of capitalist economy is that it's predicated on growth, that uh, you need to produce profits this year to be able to invest in production next year. And uh, that's why we desperately need a new economic model, because uh, uh, I think it's fair to say the capitalist economy is fundamentally incompatible with the goal of a sustainable future. And if we continue to trust the capitalist economy, uh, we are consuming our own future and uh, dooming our children and our grandchildren to a poorer quality of life. Uh, so in, in that sense, um, the environmental problems like climate change and loss of biodiversity are simply uh, the reality of uh, pursuing the capitalist economic model, which every year demands more resources be used. Decision-making system based on nation states is fundamentally incompatible with dealing with the global problems we now face. And we've seen that in you know, 27 
conferences of the parties to the Climate Change Convention, where every nation state goes along to pursue its its own interest. Um, and we're no nearer tackling a global problem uh, because of the decision-making being located at the national level. And if civilization is to survive, we urgently need to move to some sort of global decision-making framework that allows us to reallocate resources from where they're being wastefully used to where they're most needed. Okay, so we, we've talked about all the issues of population and consumption and there's corporate capture of the state and neoliberalist capture of economic thinking. But what can we do about these things? What can we do locally? Can we do personally? Can we drill it down to uh, give people a sense of action? Rita Thunberg said something to the effect that politicians treat us like stupid children and tell us fairy stories about how you can have unlimited growth and you don't need to worry. I'd like to see an adult conversation about Australia's future. Uh, I remember when we had a commission for the future back in the 1980s, uh, its message was that the future is not somewhere we're going, it's something we are creating. That just as the Australia of today has been created by the decisions and actions of countless past generations, we are by our decisions and actions enabling some futures and ruling some others out. Uh, if you don't know where you're going, any road will do. And um, our decision makers generally act as if they don't know where they're going, but any road will do as long as we're moving faster along it. Uh, but uh, nobody goes into a shop and asks for either the cheapest shoes or the most expensive shoes. If we go into a shop, we recognise that there's a trade-off between what you pay and what you get. And um, I'd like to see an adult conversation about what level of taxation we collect, uh, how we spend our taxes, um, how we move towards back towards a society in which is a genuine equality of opportunity so that uh, every young Australian has the chance of a decent education and uh, the, the chance of uh, a secure future uh, and in which we, we invest in a secure future uh, rather than toddling mindlessly along behind whatever the American war machine is doing this week um, and assuming that participating in their military ventures will inevitably be in Australia's interest. So uh, in countries like Malaysia have had conversations about where they want to be in 2050. And I, I, what I would like to see is an adult conversation in Australia about how we envisage our country in 30 years time, uh, what sort of population, how it'll be distributed, how it'll be resourced. Uh, how people will be employed, uh, how we will look after the emerging health needs of an ageing population, uh, rather than everything being based on the short term, this year's election or next year's budget. I founded my dad's... Uh, so we have had a change of government in Australia and we've sort of gone from a, a government that didn't really have much of a policy about anything and so we, we are making some progress. Do you see any prospect that we can get this sort of idea adopted at the national level? Well, there's some hopeful signs. For example, uh, the new treasurer has talked about uh, an approach to well-being and um, 
other countries like New Zealand now have a, a process whereby any proposals for government expenditure are measured not just against what it'll do for the economy, but also against what it will do for community well-being. And I think that's a hopeful step towards seeing the economy as a means to an end rather than an end in itself, that um, the economy should be our servant. It should be producing what we need rather than a, a monster which we're driven to serve. So uh, that's a hopeful sign. And um, the fact that we're finally taking seriously the Uluru Statement from the Heart and uh, recognising our indebtedness to the first Australians whose property was seized by a process that can only be described as robbery and violence. Um, I think um, you know, we can only move forward as a nation once we've acknowledged the wrongs of the past and uh, committed ourselves to... Um, serious reparations and serious recognition of the, the rights of Indigenous people. So I see some hopeful signs in the present government. Um, what I don't see really, and this is not a comment on Australia, it's a comment on the political systems generally, I don't see an acceptance or even a recognition of the scale of change that's needed to move from an unsustainable trajectory to one that would in principle be sustainable. And that's why I think it's really important to be talking about these issues, why books like the one you co-edited um, uh, with Stephen Williams, the one you're co-editing with uh, Mark Diesendorf, getting these ideas out into the community, uh, getting people to recognise that we are not driven mindlessly to repeat the mistakes of the past, that we can envisage a better future and work purposefully towards it. Do you think that for someone who's listening to our conversation today, uh, that if they're looking for some way in which they can be active, would you say that lobbying their uh, local members, their politicians for recognition at this level, that would be something substantive that we can actually do? Uh, absolutely. And I think uh, any politician who can read joined up writing and do takeaway sums will have been shocked by the election of May the 21st and the fact that what had historically been rock-solid safe seats were electing independents uh, with diverse views, but a clear agenda to do something about climate change and to do something about integrity at the national level. And what that shows is that people are prepared to put aside their past political allegiances and vote for positive change. Um, so I, I think... Um, Anything that suggests to elected politicians that the way they are going is not in step with the community and that there's a real risk the gravy train they're on might be shunted into a siding um, is enough to change the political system because I've argued that the big changes of the past have rarely come from visionary leaders. They've come from a change in community mood which has forced the decision makers to respond. Uh, and if you think about the end of slavery or votes for women or uh, the coming down of the Berlin Wall, I mean, the, the Stasi was still bugging phones while the people of Berlin were taking the wall down with their bare hands. Um, the decision makers were the last to recognise that the world had changed. But change has come from the ground up. And I say to people, you should never underestimate the importance of talking to your family, talking to your workmates, talking to your friends because that's the way the great social changes, whether it's civil rights in the US or votes for women or uh, the end of the 
18th century licensing laws in Queensland, the way significant change has happened has come about by changing the public mood and forcing the decision makers to respond. I interviewed a bloke who was the fifth generation Welsh coal miner and he was leading the uh, Adani uh, anti-coal rally to Queensland a, a couple of years ago. And I remember him saying to me that when the people lead, the leaders will follow. Correct. Correct. Since I'm, uh, you and I are both writers in this field and we both talk to a lot of people who are looking at the big picture question of the future of humanity and whether our civilization can survive, it's an extremely daunting prospect and we are really cutting it very fine. And I feel a very strong sense from well, myself and, and from other people that there's a, a reluctance to say just how serious it is and that we have to put a hopey gloss on things and, and we have to say all we need is, is hope. Uh, where do you stand on that? Are you hopeful or how do we give people a sense that... that they can be powerful and not just swept up into the disastrous seas of change. Uh, I certainly don't agree that all we need is hope because um, you know, hoping that someone will come and rescue you doesn't mean it will happen. Um, uh, hope is an important component because if you think the situation is hopeless, then you don't try and change. Um, so I think it is important to spell out to people a path out of the the, the difficult situation we're in. Um, I think the survival of, of civilization is possible, but at the moment you'd say it's pretty improbable, uh, simply because most decision makers don't recognize the scale of change that's needed. I remember in the year 2000, I gave a paper on the topic, uh, can civilization survive the 20th century? And I said, if you're a gambler, you wouldn't back us with stolen money because we don't show much sign of recognizing the scale of the problem um, and we certainly don't have either the political will or the social institutions to embark on change on the scale that's needed uh, but um, the abolitionists were told their cause was hopeless the suffragettes were told their cause was hopeless the people of berlin were told the war would never come down the people of south africa were told that apartheid was a, a permanent state um, the people of the US 50 years ago could not imagine electing an African-American as their president. Uh, change can happen if enough people want it badly enough and work sufficiently strategically. Uh, simply wanting change badly doesn't necessarily help. Um, I'm sure there are teams in the Soccer World Cup that badly wanted to win, but uh, they didn't have the tactical skills or the, the, the physical prowess to, to achieve uh, that goal. You you need both a vision, but you also need the capacity to implement it. And probably the urgent task of people like ourselves is to catalyze support for a vision of a better future, but more importantly, develop communities with the skills to start us down that road. And you see in people like Simon Holmes Accord, you know, what he's done with um, starting with uh, small-scale local wind energy projects, scaling it up to changing the political map, that um, determined people with, with a strategic vision can change the world. 
And as we used to say in the 1970s, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. All right. Well, any final thoughts before we wrap up, Ian? Uh, I suppose the final point is that, uh, you know, while uh, hope isn't all we need, it is one of the things we need. And uh, we need to believe that we can produce a better future and work purposefully for it. And um, that's really our responsibility to the future generations for whom we hold this land temporarily in trust. Uh, well, that, thank you very much for your time. Real pleasure, Rod.